Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, это Prevail и ваш ведущий Грег Олег. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This right here is the first, the premiere, the Maiden, Volume 1, Issue Number 1, the Rookie Card, the Pilot, whatever you want to call it. This is the very first Prevail podcast. I'm Greg Oliar. Oliar, not Olier. Three syllables, like caviar. We have a great show. Lincoln's Bible is here. That's what they say on Saturday Night Live. They always say the same thing. We've got a great show, and then the musical guest is here. They never say, like, eh, the show's okay. You know? The show's okay. Rolling Stones are here. Ah, it's a decent show. Here comes Miley Cyrus. It's always, we've got a great show. Musical guest is here. But in this case, we really do actually have a great show, because Lincoln's Bible is really here. We're excited about that. We're going to get to that in a minute, because this is the opening show. I just want to say a few things. First of all, everybody that subscribed to my Prevail page, I just want to say thank you very much. It's always been my my uh, intention to not charge for the work that I do. I want people to read it. Now I want people to listen to it. I want it to be free. I don't want people to go click on something and have a firewall come up and get frustrated or, or not be able to afford to, to, to read it. I do depend on that, and, and I love the generosity. It, it keeps everything going. Um, I appreciate that very much. But like I said, everything that I do is, is going to be free. The work on the website is free, and the work here on the podcast is for you, the listener. Absolutely free. I do ask one favor of you. If you would like the podcast to continue, please subscribe. You know, like the kids on the YouTube channel say, just subscribe. But if you just go to your iTunes, whatever, and click the subscribe button and download the episodes, that would be great. That would help us a lot uh, to get the numbers up to where we need to be. If you would just do that, that would be fantastic, and I would love you forever. Um, that's the first thing. But again, I, it, it really is my belief that that the work that we're doing here, and I say we because this is a this is a collaborative effort, and it always has been. 
I'm a mouthpiece for the uh, uh, people that are that are working together. And I believe that the, the fruits of that are important and should be uh, read and therefore should be uh, read without firewalls or any of this other kind of stuff. So I appreciate the support. Thank you very much. In the spirit of collaboration, this is point number two that I would like to make, I want to go forward with the show in future shows. I want to answer questions. I want to like take questions from the audience and from the listeners, but rather than just read an email or something like that, what would be really cool is if you, the listener, if you have a question for me, if you recorded it as an audio track, okay, which you can do on your, if you have a smartphone, you can do that. Just record it. Just say, hi, my name is, and state your name. And I'm from, you know, wherever you're from, or you can make up a name. I don't care. Just don't try to make up one of those like Bart Simpson, you know, Hugh Jass kind of names. Uh, and then ask the question. And if it's a good question, I will put you on the air and I will answer your question. And I think this is a great idea. I'm very excited about it. I hope people do it because, uh, first of all, it'll, it'll keep everything fresh. Um, keep me on my toes a little bit. It'll give you an opportunity to tell me and inform, uh, you know, me what you want to talk about, what do you want me to talk about and discuss and go through on the show. And also it'll be engaging. I have so many people that read the site who are so smart when I when I go back and look, sometimes I'm just sort of marvel at people that that read my prevail site, and I think, my God, these are really smart people. And I want you guys to be involved with this project. So you know, if you would like to help me out, that would be so great. I would love to hear from you. Please just you know record yourself, email it to me. I'll put you on the air. What I'm going to do today for the first episode, I'm going to read a little piece or sort of a truncated, edited version of a piece uh, that I wrote two days after the January 6th insurrection, besieging of the Capitol. I'm going to read that piece, and then we're going to take a quick break, and then Lincoln's Bible is here. So as they say on SNL, we've got a great show. Lincoln's Bible is here. We'll be right back. I'm recording this intro section at 11 a.m. on Monday, February 15th, which is President's Day. So happy birthday, George Washington. Happy birthday, Abe Lincoln. And thank God that Joe Biden is now the president and not Donald John Trump. I think everybody is still sort of mentally and emotionally hungover from the events of the weekend when the Senate, not surprisingly, voted to acquit Trump. Um, I know we all wanted witnesses. I know I thought, and I've said on, on the on Narrative Live with, with Zev and LB, that I really thought that this was an opportunity where we could sit people down, we can interrogate them, turn it into a trial where American people would have to listen and know what happened. And the reality is that just that was a fantasy. Jen Kirkland uh, had a good thread about this, and she said the same thing. It was, it's a fantasy that we had. That was never going to happen because the Republicans weren't going to allow it. You have witnesses up there. Who knows what they're going to say? The format of this thing was really weird, I thought, in terms of the questioning and how it was done. I don't know that this was the right venue to prosecute the overarching case against Trump. And this is not the end of it. This is the beginning of it. This was phase one. One of my Prevail subscribers, uh, Steve B., had a great comment to my post over the weekend. He said, here's some good news. Yesterday was the actual end of Trump's presidency. It's over. There is nothing else governmental pending. And Steve B. is absolutely right. And, you know, this is a good thing. Because for four years, five years, really, this has just been a fire hose of shit. 
on purpose. Steve Bannon said it, flood the zone, right? So much bad news, so much bullshit that the media felt the need to cover that it was very, very difficult to really stop and process what was happening to us. And this is by design. This is a PSYOP. It's part of the PSYOP. By design is to inundate us with so much information to process that our brains just stop working. So one thing that we must do, and maybe the only thing that we, normal people, can do, is to keep going back and keep reviewing things that have happened. That's why we're running the Kavanaugh uh, pieces uh, on Prevail last week and this week. This is a good time to go back and look at Brett Kavanaugh and all the perjuries that he committed during his uh, various um, Senate confirmation hearings. And it's a good time to go back and look at all of the stuff that Trump did. Certainly, it's a good time to go back and look at, at January 6th. But again, they were never going to make it fair. It was always going to be a circus. That's what the House managers said. It would have been a circus. And those guys, they're professional politicians. You know, They know the room better than I do. As much as, much as it pains me to admit, when all of them go up there and present as a unified front and say, we got what we wanted, this was absolutely the best it could have gone, I believe them. You know, They know what they're talking about. It's pretty obvious when you listen to Trump's defense team that this thing was a joke. I mean, they got laughed at as it was. I mean, this is a complete farce. I'm just going to play one quick clip from the closing argument that one of the defense attorneys did. This is a defense attorney. His name is Lionel Hutz, and he's from Springfield. And uh, this was part of his closing argument. House manager Swalwell led you to believe that President Trump wanted armed supporters at the January 6th speech, the cavalry ready for physical combat. The problem is that the actual tweet is exactly the opposite. The tweeter promised to bring the cavalry, a public display of Christ on the cross, with her to the president's speech a symbol of faith, love, and peace that would be used to crucify Vice President Mike Pence. You're under the defense rests. Okay, obviously that wasn't really Lionel Hutz. Um, Lionel Hutz is a character from The Simpsons, but the words that we just said there actually did come from what they were arguing in the defense, other than the part about crucifying Mike Pence. That part I made up. The point is, these guys were never going to take this seriously. It was going to be a joke. And we've had enough jokes if we're going to prosecute these people, we need to prosecute them. We need a special counsel, and we need to do it now. In the meantime, we have to go back and review stuff that happened. So what I want to do right now is read an excerpt from a piece that I wrote on January 8th, which is two days after the besieging, called Trump Crusaders on the March. This is what I wrote. What we now know as the Fourth Crusade began in the year 1199, when a troop of rough-and-tumble French noblemen the MAGA of their day, heeded the new Pope's call to liberate the Holy Land from the infidels. The endeavor was bankrolled by the Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, who was in his 80s and almost blind, a decrepit mob boss, basically. Using what amounted to early 13th century psyops, the Doge managed to convince the Frenchmen that before they attacked Jerusalem, they should first lay siege to Constantinople. This made zero sense to the self-righteous crusaders because Constantinople was a Christian city, the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Why should they make war with other Christians? But the Doge needed this to happen. The Byzantine emperor, who lived in Constantinople, owed him a lot of money, and this was a golden opportunity to use borrowed muscle to collect on the debt. Constantinople was famously impregnable, 
surrounded by difficult-to-navigate waters on three sides, and defended on the fourth by a series of unscalable walls, of the kind Trump never managed to build. Even Attila the Hun took one look at the place and kept moving. But in April of 1204, the Doge and his French brute squad managed. They landed their ships on the perilous shore, and the Byzantine guardmen, insiders, helped them penetrate the city walls. Once inside, the Crusaders lay waste to the greatest city in the world, slaughtering its citizens, raping its women, burning its buildings, destroying its precious artwork, and stealing whatever they could get their grimy hands on. As one historian put it, there was never a greater crime against humanity than the Fourth Crusade. That this unspeakable horror was committed in the name of Jesus Christ did not escape the notice of the Pope, who was livid when he heard the news. Whoever suggested such a thing to you, he wrote, and how did they lead your mind astray? The Pope's cover-your-ass tone was similar to Mitch McConnell's on the night of January the 6th. Before Trump came along, back when I was still writing fiction, I spent a good year and a half working on a historical novel about the Byzantine Empire. This was a robust civilization that for seven centuries was the center of medieval Christendom, the cultural capital of the Western world. And now? Most people are only vaguely acquainted with its name. Its greatest contribution to modern society is probably the word icon. When empires fall, they fall fast. I've thought about the Fourth Crusade a lot these last six weeks, since the motley MAGA army of smirking cosplay insurrectionists stormed the U.S. capital. The Constantinopolitans surely knew that the three emperors who held the throne from 1199 to 1204, Alexius III, whom the Doge installed, the Trumpy Alexius IV, who robbed the treasury and fled, and Alexius V, the Mike Pence-like sap who was left holding the bag, were bumblers. But I'm sure that they did not realize, as they prepared for Easter that fateful year, that their city was on the verge of being destroyed, that life, as they knew it, was over. The January 6th besieging could have gone south in a hurry. These people were angry, they were violent, and they genuinely believed, with the same dangerous fervor of the doge-duped crusaders of eight centuries ago, that the election was stolen from their lord and savior, Donald John Trump. It is a minor miracle that only six people died, and that every single one of our elected officials emerged unscathed. Constantinople held on for a century and a half after the sack of 1204, before falling for good to the Turks in May of 1453. The Byzantines were replaced by the Ottomans. Their great empire is no more. One day America, too, will fall. As the Constantinopolitans of 1204 could attest, nothing is guaranteed. We'll be right back. And now Alex Jones reads a poem by Shel Silverstein. I will not play a tug of war. I'd rather play a tug of war. Where everyone hogs instead of togs. Where everyone giggles and rolls on the rug. Where everyone kisses and everyone grins. Where everyone cuddles and everyone wins. That was Alex Jones reading a poem by Shel Silverstein. And now back to the program. Just so you can get a visual on this, we're recording this. Each of us is in an office, but in order to get premium sound, we've each built a fort with blankets and pillows. Uh, to simulate a kind of uh, soundstage. So that, that's how much we care about getting the word out to, <laughs> to you find people listening. Anyway, uh, l- let's get right to it because I don't know how much longer I can breathe under this blanket. Um, <laughs> so you and I have gotten to know each other pretty well in the last two years, and, and especially in the last year, as I started doing the Prevail site and, and we've worked more closely together and done Zev's show and stuff like that. 
But for the purposes of people that don't know who you are, I want to just ask you a little bit about the origins of Lincoln's Bible. How did you get interested in this story? Why did you pick that name? Who are you anyway? Let us know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, well, I'm a screenwriter, or I was before I started doing this. Yeah. I still yeah. am. I'm still working, but this has taken up quite a lot of time. I think like a lot of people in my industry and, I, and, and, and in many others, we just reacted to the Trump presidency as an existential threat and uh, took on a to this sort of mission of not just resistance, but bringing, you know, for me, bringing my skill set, my ability to tell story, break down a narrative, get the truth out about this guy, because it wasn't happening um, with our press in the way that it was piercing anything. I mean, it was just, we were being, I think, just led down the path of this, pre of this, you know, for me in 2016, an impending presidency that I knew was just going to lead to mass suffering. And of course it has. So um, that's who I am and what motivated me. I am not a political person. I've said this before. It shocks people. I know we're going to talk about some politics today, Craig, and I just want everyone to know that I, I, in that sense, I think I'm more like everyone in the audience of just suddenly finding myself over this journey, being engaged in politics in a way I, I never imagined I would be, and trying to learn as much as I can about that world and how it operates. You know, I think that I think that in some ways, the people that are removed from it, at least one yeah. degree removed, have a better ability to look at it objectively than maybe people that are caught up in it and can't see the forest for the trees. That's just a shout out to uh, those of us who aren't inside the beltway doing this stuff. I don't disagree with that in that, uh, but, I, but I sure wish that those folks inside the beltway had come out a little bit more strongly. It would have been amazing to have them come out and say, yeah, this is the way the world of politics really works. It's all about blackmail and leverage. And, you know, it, even though we can kind of assume all that, and I certainly had known about Roger Stone and, and the kind of dirty ops that he was involved with, but I knew it all from the side of his involvement with some gangsters. So it would have been nice, I think, to have people who, you know, who had worked for Giuliani or had had been involved um, with Roger Stone and kind of knew the world that was around Donald politically that was forming around him and, and uh, underneath him and getting him prepared. I certainly knew who Paul Manafort was. I would have loved to have had those people at the beginning speak up and say, oh no, this, these people are really sleazy and dirty and they they do things like blackmail uh, other politicians into cooperating with them while behind the scenes we're digging up all this opposition research and dirt on everybody. That would have been nice. So that didn't happen. That's okay. To answer your other part of your question is how it started for me was back in 2016. In 2015, when he came down the, that escalator, 
I knew exactly who he was. I knew he was mobbed up. I knew there was massive amounts of Russian money behind him that had rescued him at, at one point uh, that I knew of because I was privy to a conversation back in the mid-2000s where people were discussing that about him and the, the very same people who helped elevate him onto television with The Apprentice. And that was just all, just, I just force gumped my way into that. And so in terms of being there where people were discussing who and what he was, how much debt he had, and what a potential threat his financial collapse at that time in the mid 2000s, where he was really facing it, was presenting to the individuals and the, and the companies, the entities that had put him forward already for like, a, at that point, I think The Apprentice had been on a year or two years as this, you know, billionaire, the self-made man. <laughs> so that whole thing was about to come crumbling down. And some people that I knew socially, not as a screenwriter, I just socially knew them, were very concerned about that. I shouldn't say that. The folks I knew really didn't give a shit, but they knew what was going on. <laughs> and the person that was hyper concerned about it was a producer that had a lot to lose. And so when, you know, flash forward 10 some odd years later, when he came down that escalator, I was like, oh, shit. I remembered all of that, that I had heard. I knew who and what he was in terms of being how for me, what I had also found, because I do study organized crime, was how deeply embedded he was with some of the Cosa gangsters, uh, mob bosses that I had studied as a writer. So uh, I was just like, you know, blinking red sirens in my brain of, oh my God, this guy, we cannot let this guy become president. And when I heard what he was saying and the dog whistles coming out of his you know, pie hole, I, I also knew how dangerous that was because of where I grew up. I grew up in a red state. I grew up in the middle of the country. I grew up with during the Reagan era where, you know, and Confederate flags were something very common around all the, even though I was in Missouri, Kansas and Missouri, the, the places that, uh, you know, like my, you know, that I went to high school, the high school kids. And it just is a whole part of American culture. There's like two Americas that when you come from that environment and then you come out to a place like Los Angeles and start working as a screenwriter in Hollywood, you can just see, you know, I just, it just saw that great divide and how clueless each part of the American divide was about the other side and the stories everybody has about, you know, <laughs> the Republicans had about who the libs were and the, and the, elites had about who Republican voters were. It just was, I just saw him lean into that crack with hate. And I knew he was going to be president that second he started talking. And so I worked really hard to try to use my connections and resources to journalism to get the story out about what I knew about him. I had gathered agents and business affairs people who could speak about and were willing to go, especially as we got closer and closer to the election, willing to go on the record 
record, not on the record, but at least speak to journalists and sort of confirm that this man was not what he said he was and took all of that to a very prominent um, print publication and it got killed. That story got killed and never ran and never got pursued. And then I found out that I wasn't the only one doing that. There are a lot of people that knew exactly who and what Donald Trump was, that he was a fraud, a con man, what he had been up to within the realm of around The Apprentice. Flash forward to Inauguration Day when he was taking his oath. I really didn't think he was going to make it, Greg. <laughs> I thought he was going to run from when he got elected to when he was inaugurated. I kept saying, oh, he's going to run away. There's a way this this guy's going to actually take the oath of office. I, I just truly couldn't believe he would do it. Um, but why? It was, I mean, why wouldn't he at that point, having having won? I mean, I know that the, the the thinking is that he didn't expect to win or whatever. I don't know if that's true or not. But once he's in, I mean, why not at least sit behind the Oval Office for a couple hours? And what what made you I think he would win? Just just his cowardliness, I, or no? Because he's so compromised. Because oh, the well, second yeah, is the second you become president. It just was, I was like, oh my God, it's all going to get exposed. I knew the dangerous men behind him. I was like, oh, I, I just couldn't, when you're, when you're running a con and a fraud at the level that this guy was, to actually then become president and take that oath of office and take all that responsibility on, more responsibility than any job on the planet, and this guy didn't even know he wasn't even running Trump org. It was, it was like no, no, he, he's, he never run anything in his life. I just couldn't believe. I thought, oh, he's going to he's going to run away. He's going to say he's sick. And, you know, I just couldn't believe he would take that on for real. It was like watching cosplay. And then in that yeah. threshold moment where it's going to become real. And he did it. And I think in some way we've been watching that same dynamic go on with the base that he's been radicalizing all this all this yeah. these four years as well the cosplay so, turns into the real yeah the cosplay turns into the real and then you're then you're left with all of that so but he now, did and he did he did it by putting his hand on lincoln's bible yes, that the is actual the lincoln's bible the actual lincoln's bible that's the bible he took the oath of office on there is a story about that Bible um, that will illuminate to everybody why he demanded that he take the oath on that Bible. And I snapped. I did. I, <laughs> I admit it. I, something in me just snapped. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take this guy down. I'm going to do my part. And at that point, I just started trying to figure out what Twitter was and how to use it. I was like, okay, I'll go into his territory, go into his domain of Twitter and put the information there. Since no matter which printout I seemed to try to turn to, I knew that they weren't going to print it. And so that's why Lincoln's Bible and why I stayed anonymous within that is because part of exposing him was also meant exposing the very powerful people in my industry that control whether I have a paycheck or not. Yeah, so no, I, 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 I don't think anybody questions 
why you would take a, a pen name. I mean, that's that's something that people have done for for a long time, and I don't, yeah. I don't think there's any I don't I don't think there's any moral or ethical problem anybody should have with that. Um, it's for protection. No, 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 no. no. Um, it is, and then it became, you know, I, I just started talking and sharing my, and I was very careful not to even give a gender away. I mean, people for a really long time thought I was a guy because I, anytime I chose a meme or a, a GIF, GIF, whatever, anytime I chose anything, I associated it with masculine intentionally without, so if I was like doing an image, a, a GIF image or a picture to sort of give a tone for whatever research I was putting out or thread I was putting out, I, I almost always chose a man in a GIF. And that was very intentional. It was subliminal. Well, we said, <laughs> I think, it, I it think you know, people still, I still see that on Twitter sometimes. Oh, Lincoln's Bible is a woman. I didn't know. Uh, yeah. Where you, where you been? I know. I mean, as if a man could roll out this hardcore organized crime shit. Truly. It was like, <laughs> you know, I, it, and I think that was part of it too. It's just, I was talking about such muscular stuff, but that's what I write about. It, it's difficult even now for audiences to wrap their minds around the fact that a woman can, can grasp something, I think is sort of traditionally masculine for whatever reason as the underworld of organized crime, but it's, it's kind of my jam, so. This episode is brought to you by Four Sticks Press, publisher of Dirty Rubles, an introduction to Trump Russia by Greg Oliar. Salon calls Dirty Rubles essential reading for all Americans. For a limited time, Dirty Rubles is available for the special price of $5.49. That's $5.49 on Amazon.com. This episode is also brought to you by Prevail, Greg Oliar's Substack, with new columns every Tuesday and Friday and a literary Sunday pages every weekend. Prevail is your place for in-depth reporting. Subscribe at gregoliar.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. And now back to the program. Now, this segues into kind of what I wanted to discuss today. My own, at that time, at the time that you saw him coming down the escalator and knew he would win, I, of course, did not. I, I thought that he was a joke and would never win because people would be able to see that he was uh, ridiculous. I, of course, was wrong about that. But the one thing that, that I, I kind of went into my own work thinking about was, hey, if the Republican Party if they get hip to the fact that this guy is owned by Russia, if they know all of the contacts that Donald Trump has had with the Russians, they will turn on him. They will be appalled because historically, traditionally, conservatives in this country hate Russia. The John Birch Society, say what you will about the John Birch Society, but they know to hate the Ruskies, right? And that's something that I just, I, I did not, anticipate. I did not anticipate that that entire party or most of the party, meaning not the, the, the voters, but the, the members of Congress and the movers and shakers in the Republican Party did not care. And not only did they not care, we're all entwined with it. And in many ways are the ones that are driving the car. And Trump is almost like a sideshow. And I think that's something that people missed in this last election. 
People went out, voters went out, and they voted for Biden in overwhelming numbers, including many registered Republicans, many independents, many people who've never voted before, came out and voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. However, there are plenty of people, like people in my family, who voted for Biden and then voted Republican all uh, on the rest of the ticket. And I think a lot of people did that. The numbers bear that out. We did not do as well down ballot as I think everyone was hoping for. We lost seats in the House. I think that people grasped that Trump was bad. It took a couple hundred thousand people to die of COVID to grasp it, but they did grasp it. Enough people grasped that he was bad, but people could not make the leap to realize that the Republican Party was also bad. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Why is that? Why why hasn't that connected with people? Well, the party itself, the Republican Party itself, I think what's interesting about that is it's very tribal. It, it is a tribe. Yeah. It's always been a tribe where the Democrat Democrats have sort of whatever faction within the Democratic Party has behaved with the same sort of singular mindset and protect one another at all costs the way that the Republican Party does and has always, and its members are attracted to that, where that's occurred on the Democrat side, I feel like that's that's where it gets called fringe, right, or radical, but on the Republican, it's party line. Um, and it's tribalness. I, I think back, just to pull it back to what we were talking about with Donald and this whole thing before he got really installed by the party in 2016, because they all knew who he was, right? Right. And this sort of, and we'll talk about, I think what we should talk about is the difference, there's sort of three factions here within the GOP to really make sure as we move forward, we make clear distinctions when we're talking about them. There are the elected officials, Republican leadership. Then there's the GOP, a, a, an organization in and of itself, really, truly, that, the, that helps pick the leaders and make sure they get elected. And then there are the Republican voters. And they're not, those are not, these are three very different things within this tribe, three different parts of the tribe. And the more that we collapse that and speak to the different factions of the tribe, especially voters, as if they are uh, culpable of the same, I don't know what the word is, somehow the same as the Republican leadership, the elected officials, and the GOP, the body of the GOP, the, 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 the party itself, the organizing, the organization that is the party. That's a mistake that of going forward. And so we could talk about not making that mistake. I hope. The, the mistake, I think, if I if I understand it being, you don't want to say, oh, you voted Republican, you're part of, you're evil, you're, you know, this and that. Right. Because it's not or, that. It's, it's, Ted Cruz is evil. Josh Hawley is evil. Um, right. There are, there is evil within that party, for sure. But the, right. the, the average Republican voter is not evil. They're just tribal, like you said. They're, tribal and they're in their echo chamber and it, and this idea that they should ha- should know better by now well a lot of them did and the tribe i think the 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 lore of the tribe and the habit of the tribe is so so powerful 
And they know this, that they know this and they exploit it, right? You mean the leadership, the GOP? The, le- the GOP leadership, the members oh, of yeah. Congress and the machine exploit the fact that people are much more comfortable who have voted Republican are going to continue to vote Republican. Right. They know that they have a tribe. <laughs> they know yeah. that they, they, they intentionally built one. That's what the John Birch Society was. Yeah, yeah. And if you remember, when the Access Hollywood tape broke, you had people like even Jason Chaffetz coming out and saying, I have daughters. I don't know how I can vote for this guy. And then we had recordings that we heard later of Paul Ryan, right, saying, I'm not telling anybody how to vote, like on his call with Republican uh, congressional leadership. So there were all these signals coming out from the elected officials of the tribe and and party GOP leadership as well in terms of of that organization. I don't think it was, Reince Priebus was run, running it at the time, not yes. um, Ron, Rona, whatever her name is, Mitt Romney's niece, horrible woman. They were even signaling, we're not telling you that you have to vote for him. Everything was pulling away from him from tribal leadership was pulling away from Donald as the nominee when that Access Hollywood tape broke, it bro- it sort of pierced the tribal loyalty, right? It kind of pierced the Borg. It was like, oh, yeah. okay. And then what happened? Mike Pence came out and said these two words, come home, come home. And the tribe then was called to return to home that this was about family, that this was about lineage. This was about their own identity. This was a choice of intimacy rather than a choice of political leadership. It was tribal. And he played that card and he pied pipered everyone back into voting for Donald. That was a high level manipulation. I just, it was stunning to me and it worked. And he's really good at that, I have to say. Like he, the way Mike Pence presents, he's very calm. He talks in a very relaxed tone. I think when he did his radio show, it was described as um, Rush Limbaugh on decaf. That's how it was described. And it's, it's easy to see how someone who is used to figures like that in their political life would listen to somebody like that. I remember during the debates, Trump would say these insane things and then Pence would go on TV and be like, no, 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 he doesn't really mean that. And he would just sort of calm everything down in such a way that that you just sort of stopped and listened. And and that was the beginning of the gaslighting, of course, but Pence was was a very effective messenger in in a way that that also Dick Cheney was when he was, um, I don't know if you remember him debating John Edwards back in the day, whatever whatever year that was, when Edwards was the vice presidential candidate. And we all gathered around thinking, this is gonna be like, it's a wonderful life. It's gonna be like, uh, you know, George Bailey taking on Mr. Potter and Cheney kicked his ass in that debate. Yeah. He destroyed him. And, yep. and he did it by, he has this way of seeming like, I'm very confident, but not in an arrogant way. I'm confident when you hear me talk, you you stop and you think, all right, this guy's got it all under control. And ultimately on some level, that's what we want from our leaders. We want, we want to believe that they have everything under control. And Pence does that. He, he has that ability to convey everything's all right. We're doing a great job. 
even, I mean, in the face of, of this horror of COVID, which he was also responsible for, yeah, he still goes out and presents that way. So, you know, that's one of the things we're up against, I guess. We're up against dad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's a patriarchal tribe. Yes, and, very much so. Uh, very much so. And dad, when dad shows up, you know, the, the, everyone got into the tribe because dad was the family tribal leader. Being a Republican, it, it's very tied to your family and, and your family tribe and then your, this bigger tribe that you, that you join. And so when these guys know, I'm sorry, Mike Pence knew to show up and sound like dad. Come home to, to the unruly teenagers or the young adults who are going out and thinking for themselves and ah oh, and then dad says you know it's okay you can come home and we'll we'll take you in and we'll still love you and 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 remember your loyalty and remember your affinity to your family it's very powerful shit right so that let's go to where we are now and how we're dealing with the fact that we had Tens of millions of Americans still vote for him uh, pre-insurrection, you know, albeit. I I wonder how many really would do it Um, post-insurrection. Almost almost all of them, probably. Well, now it's all being, now that's all being sort of gaslit to affinity, right? Um, So it's it's hard. And, and you know, what we do know is we do have about 30 to 40 million Americans who are full tribal warriors for their for their tribal leader, right? Yeah. Which is which the Republican Party intentionally handed over to Trump. I do not buy this line of horseshit that they're afraid of their base, and that's the only reason they cooked this base up. Yes, they did. They're not. You can't say, okay, now you're afraid of your own monster. The Republicans who didn't have a role in in this monster, right? Or didn't go in line with what the party was doing, knew that their tribe was crossing a Rubicon, they're still in their camp, right? When you look at, you know, talk about Cheney, look at Liz Cheney. You do have some, and the, and the Republicans who left because they couldn't tolerate it anymore. Mm-hmm. And they knew they would get primaried and they knew that their survival, you know, was dead for them politically because why? Because the party chose to, radicalize the base into uh, what became an insurrectionist mob for their dear leader. They chose that. Again, I've said this, I'll keep saying this because I want us to fight back against this, the kind of gaslighting that's happening right now about even from, from our media and from a lot of pundits that the Republicans are somehow beholden to Trump. Trump is beholden to them. Trump would not have been president if they hadn't actively chosen him. And then they control their voter databases. They're the ones that handed, the GOP leadership handed over the database of every single voter they have to Trump and his machine not just because he was their chose their elected leader. He would never have been the elected leader if they hadn't already handed that shit over to Paul yeah. Manafort. Yeah. This is, this is what it is, everybody. 
the place to get the GOP voter in terms of, hey, your tribal leaders fucked you. That's where we got to get them. And then they they took your they took your own data and used it to build a propaganda machine to continue to radicalize you and and everyone in your family. They're after you. They're after you. They're trying to scramble your brain. They've been actively at that for a while. Give an off-ramp. Republican voters, a lot of them, they're just not up for this. They, what they don't know is that it's happening. The deeper conversation about, okay, it's happening to them. There's a concerted effort to radicalize them based with the most powerful tools we have, mankind has ever had at its fingertips to actually get into people's minds and, and scramble them, right? And confuse, collapse truth and, and, you know, put alternative facts out there. I can't even believe that Kellyanne Conway didn't, you know, I don't think she made that phrase up on the spot. I think, no, I think she, she was very, clearly, she clearly was did not. very well trained in, in uh, what alternative facts are and how to create an alternate reality for people by probably some of the best propagandists on the planet. That pathway for, of revealing all that for Republican voters, giving them an off-ramp, includes not vilifying them for the very reason that they were targets for, the, for this radicalization in the first place. There is a reckoning that every GOP voter will, I believe, have to come to with their own soul and spirit one day of, well, how could you have not seen who this man was? What is it about you that in the flaws within you that was okay with his racism, that was okay with his sexism, that was okay with his criminality, that was okay with his with every, every aspect of his corrupt character. At some point, the folks that still voted, even if they voted him out at the top of the ticket in this last election, yet voted down ballot for the entire party, they're going to have to come to some kind of reconciliation, I do believe, with what, kind, what is going on inside them that they, they were okay with him at any point in time, at any point in time, and okay with a party, a tribe that would elevate that individual to their highest position. But I would put it to all of us that right now is not the time to, and we are not the people to call the GOP voters to the carpet in that way. Yeah. And, you know, and we'll have a, a more hardened quote unquote base, but we'll have a, a way that they'll, we do not need this movement to gain any more traction, to gain any more seats in the next election. We must defeat Trumpism. And in doing that means we need to, for the GOP voter, for Republican voters, this tribe of voters to be able to themselves say, I can reject this on my own. Michael Francis Rizzi, do you renounce Satan? I do renounce him. 
I think that the thing to do for us as, as, as the narrative storytelling people is yeah. to just keep presenting the facts as they happen. And Mike Pence, we talked about Mike Pence. He is a perfect example of how the party failed miserably the American people and to do what they wanted to do. Because if you think about what he is, okay, he was chosen presumably by Paul Manafort. He's chosen by Paul Manafort, but he was put yeah. there because he's good at what we, for one of the reasons is he was good at what we described. He comes across his dad, he calms everything down. He's a good kind of base to the acid that is Donald Trump, right? So they, they go well together in that sense. Yeah. When the impeachment happened, the first time, the first impeachment in January, they had a, ch a, ch a chance, a golden opportunity, Republicans did, to get rid of Trump. And then Pence would have been president in January. Yeah. And they did not, okay? They didn't do that. It's always struck me as really curious that they chose not to do that. When Pence probably, maybe if he was in charge, would have done a better job with uh, the COVID response than Trump did. And maybe he would have won uh, election in, in 2020 against Biden. We don't know. But the other point with Pence is that back in March, I think it was February or March, when COVID was starting to be a thing, there was a press conference that Trump had with, uh, what's his name, Azar, the guy who's the Health and Human Services Secretary. Alex, yeah, yeah. And he kind of seemed like ready to go and that he kind of had an idea of what to do. That was my read on him body language wise. And Trump totally cock blocked him. Trump said, oh, we're not going to have you do this, even though that's your job. We're going to have Mike Pence do it. And I oh. tweeted at the time, there is every incentive in the world for Mike Pence to succeed with this. Because if he does, if he comes in here and says, okay, I'm in charge of the pandemic response now, this is what we're going to do. And does yeah. even a mild uh, uh, approximation of what Cuomo was doing, that would only be good for him politically, right? It would only help him politically. And yeah. it, it doesn't, it wouldn't have required much. Just, you know, give the keys to Fauci and do what he says and then talk to us every day. That's all you have to do. It's not rocket science. It's not hard yeah. in, in that way if you're on top of the pyramid. And he didn't. He went along with everything Trump was doing, which was nothing. He went along with Jared's plan. Worse to, than nothing. Yeah. yeah. You know, Jared Kushner, acting president, Jared Kushner's plan yeah. to say, you know, oh, it's really affecting people in New York and New Jersey and California in the blue states. We can blame the governors there. We'll let them die because it'll be good for us politically and maybe we can make a buck. That's what Kushner was doing. Mike Pence went along with this. So, yeah. and then at the debate, when he debated Kamala Harris, and he was good at the debate, I thought. He, he you know, it, it was hard to, you know, he stayed calm. He, you could see it. He's, he, he was on the debate team in high school and in college. And you could yeah. see in his brain, you could see his eyes. He was like, oh, I scored a point with this. I made it about the, the swine flu or whatever the hell he was talking yeah. about. And it's like, this is not what's happening right now. People are dying in droves. And it's your fault. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not about, you know, scoring cheap points here. So then Pence was turned on by Trump. I mean, the insurrection happened. The, yeah. the, they went there to kill him. That's what they were yes. trying to do. I believe yep. they were trying to kill Pence and Pelosi and Grassley because that would have made Mike Pompeo 
the next in line, and Pompeo is the only one corrupt enough who would have pardoned Trump. And a pardon of Trump is a huge thing, huge, right? Because he is going to, I don't know if he's going to go to prison, I don't know what, but he's going to be indicted for things. He's going to, the things are going to come out in yeah. court that he's going to have to deal with for the rest of his life. A pardon would have really helped him. It was worth it if you're him. If you're a mobbed up Donald Trump, it's worth everything you can try to do to get that going for yourself. And Pompeo would have done it. So that's what they were after. And Pence, after carrying this man's water and kissing his ass for four years and then humiliating himself for four years and, and going along with a plan in the response that resulted in many thousands more people dying than should have, he just let himself be, you know sheep to the slaughter in that in that plot it's, it's insane to me and even now yeah. you don't hear pence come out talking about it he hasn't seen the light he's owned he, he has no control he, i think i think you've been saying that he's owned and he i think you're absolutely right i think at the core of it all there's that his wife and daughter were also with him yeah during the insurrection i don't think mike pence as owned as he is by whatever forces, um, remember that Paul Manafort picked him <laughs> right. to PVP, which is a which are different for same forces that own Donald Trump, but not Trump himself. Uh, in terms of organized crime and and foreign intelligence services, but I, I don't think he was read in on the fact that. They were going to kill him. <laughs> I don't think he was. Yeah, he missed that read memo. Read on that. Yeah. I think he missed that memo, and so he's in that place of being completely owned, and yet, you know, he is at home talking talking again about the family part of the tribe, the family dynamic of the tribe. He is at home with his wife and his daughter, who's an adult daughter, um, having to reconcile. There's no way he. They know they, that that Donald Trump sent that mob there to kill him so he's in that he's having to balance all of that well being completely owned by the dark forces behind donald trump and and mike pompeo and yet inside of his own family home knowing you know having to face his wife and daughter of who were there knowing that oh my god they you know the mob boss put out a hit on me <laughs> put out yeah. a hit yeah. on me He's really lucky he survived. He really, really is, and as are they. They would have killed him. They absolutely they would have killed him. There's no question. If they, they would no have question. killed him, they would have killed Pelosi. God That's knows right. what they would have done with AOC or Kamala. I can't even. I don't want yeah. to go there. Um, so, you know, and I think Pompeo and his role in that, there was something about that insurrection that was like, it, it clearly was sort of a brainchild of, of Roger Stone as well in terms of, you know, he did the Brooks Brothers riot, which right. was all these preppy guys showing up. You know, you talked about John Edwards and, and Al Gore, that campaign, the all these preppy guys showing up, you know, in their Brooks Brothers preppiness at, outside of, I can't, was it the DNC headquarters, wherever, or no, they were counting, wherever they were the ballots counting. were being was counting. It Minnesota, I think? I it was, a, it. yeah, in Florida, and pressured the vote count to stop, to come to a stop. And then the whole thing got transferred up into just by being protesters outside. And then it all got transferred up to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court ruled, made a ruling that it never should have. And then Al Gore conceded. 
Okay. So this was like the Capitol Hill version of the Brooks Brother riot, yet with um, the Proud Boys with sort of domestic terrorists and, um, and, and 4chan, right? And instead uh, of wearing Brooks. Brooks Brothers, they were wearing horns and um, capes right. and, and fur. And and, and, and and don't tread on me flags while they were literally treading on their own people to death in order to get to Mike Pence. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it was violent, you know, you can't, it was a violent insurrection. So somewhere between Brooks Brothers uh, 2.0 with 4chan and domestic terrorist militias and pre-planning and like the level of planning in this thing is insane, right? With the, with the violent, with the violence on the side of the violence. And what Erdogan did when he was uh, facing the military, throwing him out because he was so corrupt, his own military was and generals were coming to get him. And he put a call out to his people, if everyone remembers this, take to the streets, stop them, stop them. It's a coup. They're trying to throw me out, right? And his radicalized base of people did. And they went to the streets, they stopped it. And then what did he do? He went and he took all the judges and threw the judges in jail so that the courts could not reverse um, it, it, by enforcing law, his reinstallment of himself as leader, as dear leader in Turkey. So I think that that was also, yes, Pompeo coming in. I don't know that it was about getting a pardon, Greg. Um, and Pompeo, if you remember at the time leading up to the insurrection when clearly there was a plan in place and that you could kind of see now who was read in on the plan and who was not. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Pompeo started tweeting at all. He was overseas. He made sure he was overseas. Right. As Steve Mnuchin also out of out of the country, Jared, out of the country, right? They all, they were all conveniently somewhere else. But Pompeo, as Secretary of State, was tweeting out stuff like swagger, yeah. with hashtag, and all this other really embarrassing stuff. I feel like what it would have been with the succession going to Mike Pompeo would have been Mike Pompeo discrediting the election and keeping Donald Trump in and making the argument as the head of, uh, of the nation from the White House, the executive branch, at that point in time, if, if in terms of succession going to him, if it was about backing up Trump, you know, the leadership in between is dead. And the next guy who's in the line of, of succession, maybe possibly even stepping in as, you know, Secretary of State, saying, no, Donald Trump really did win this. We really did have a problem here. We need to pressure all of this, right, and get it into the courts. It just was about staying in power. I don't well, either way, I mean, that was, it was, clearly, yeah. it was clearly a thing. Uh, about Erdogan, the, the Turkish president, two, two yeah. data points about him. First, he is the foreign leader, not Putin, that Trump spent the most time on the phone with. Remember, there was a report about that. Yeah. So he was really, he knew exactly how to call him and get in his ear. And I think that's, that's interesting because right. there's a lot of back and forth. Turkey, because Mike Flynn was a uh, foreign agent of Turkey. I that's think we need right. to say that. And he's such a thug. And when Giuliani. Came, and Giuliani, yeah. He's such a thug that when Erdogan came to the United States, his bodyguards beat up people who were protesting him in Washington, right. D.C. 
and got away with, with it. No Nothing happened. No consequences. No consequence. As, as if it never happened. Everybody forgets about this stuff. So I think a good place to kind of uh, land this plane of the discussion today, um, <laughs> which goes, you know, we've talked about Pence and Trump and um, the GOP. Right now, what we saw, and also Pence's inability, Pence had opportunities, right, to, and the GOP had opportunities to repudiate Trump and failed to do so at impeachment, at COVID response. This is another one. This is now Trump incited an insurrection against the government. That was a seditious conspiracy. Our Capitol was besieged. And that's the word I'm going to continue to use. It was a besieging of the Capitol. And what, yes. how are the Republicans? The Republicans were in danger. They were there. They, they were at risk, all of them. Everybody in that building was at risk because nobody knew what was going to happen. How are they responding? They want to move on. They want to turn the page. They don't want it to go. So, so your Ted Cruz and your Josh Hawley and your Lauren Boebert and your Marjorie Taylor uh, Green and Chip Roy and these people that won't, that are packing heat there and refuse to do yeah. the metal detectors. That's the that's the Republican Party right now. That's who's there right now. They think so little of this of this insurrection attempt, which is the most brazen attack on our democracy since John Wilkes Booth shot and killed Abraham Lincoln. Period. Nothing comes close. It is the worst yeah. thing that's happened in terms of whether or not the Republic survives since Booth shot Lincoln. And they don't care. They don't care. Yeah. They don't want they, they're arguing that impeachment isn't necessary. They're arguing that we should move on. They're arguing about unity, which is just this preposterous bullshit. And that's what the Republican Party is. And maybe that will help people see. And my hope is that the impeachment trial will, uh, you know, make it more clear to people. And, and less, when they're told stuff on Fox News, it's easy to avoid. When they're told on Fox News, hey, it, the COVID is a hoax. It's just like the flu. You can believe that until people in your family start to die, right? This is the same yeah. thing. You can believe it until you see the video, until you see the footage, until you realize, no, this was actually bad. And these people were not Antifa in disguise or whatever the fuck. This was a, a yeah. bona fide coup attempt by a lame duck president to either stay in power or install his puppet so that he could get off criminal charges. That's what it was. That's what it was. And just to bring it all back to the whole reason you and I know each other in the first place. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the actual expertise I do have um, it, with uh, understanding the world of organized crime, perhaps if anyone wasn't owned before fully through the way the mob boss owns people, the way mobsters own people is they get you in a compromising situation where you've committed a crime or your morals are so committed or, or compromised that they can then engage you in a further crime or a crime if it was just you with a hooker in a hotel room well they've got you you know and then they show they tell you your wife will see this and then here you got to go do this um scam with us right we need you to commit now a financial crime to which the individual the politician that's being targeted could actually then lose their own freedom, not just their, you know, social standing or, or their family. So I would say that anyone in the GOP that's just all in on this, there's a lot of it that's about being cynical and they're just doing the tribal thing in a very cynical way. They know he's a criminal. They know it was a real insurrection. They know that 
Um, police officers were were killed and really, really injured. Um, they know other people died. They know how illegal it was. They know that it was the overthrowing of democracy. They know that it was real sedition. They know all of this. Um, and they might cynically just be playing the, the game of like, well, it doesn't matter because the propaganda machine and the gaslighting of the, of the base is so extreme that and so powerful that we can keep um, the party together and grow it and keep, and keep our power. Or, quite frankly, maybe someone like Kevin McCarthy is now facing real criminal culpability because he was actually involved in the planning of this operation. Do not underestimate Donald, a mobster, raised by Tony Salerno, raised by Paul Castellano. That's who raised him, Roy Cohn. Don't underestimate his ability to pull out his own comms, his own text messages, his own, his, the, the evidence that he might have saying, you know what, if I go down for this, you do too, because you knew. That's owning someone. The traitors are easy to spot. They've never been easier to spot than in this particular particular case. <laughs> um, this has been great. Lincoln's Bible. Follow her on the Twitters at Lincoln's Bible if you're not already doing so. Thank you. Fun stuff down the line for you, but we'll talk about that later. Thank you. We'll talk um, about that. I got to come out from underneath this blanket, Greg. Yeah, I know. I'm about to. I'm about to lose it. So. Thanks to Lincoln's Bible and to you for listening. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tarashenko provided the Russian voiceover. Thanks to Stephanie St. John for the narration. Thanks to Allison Gill, Jason Smith, Mackenzie Mazell, and everyone else involved with producing this podcast. Please subscribe to the Prevail website. Visit gregolear.com. That's G-R-E-G-O-L-E-A-R.com. Until next time, we shall prevail.